0: Sonia created the Love the Word Bible Study Method just for you, based on Mary's personal practice and formulated for your personality and temperament. Get your Love the Word meditations every Monday morning by signing up at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. If you like having Bible study in your pocket and you have an iPhone or iPad, why not leave a review? Search Bible Study Evangelista in iTunes and tell everyone how you're loving and lifting all you've been given. Here's Sonya. So I imagine you noticed that there was not a show last week and I have to tell you that's the first time I've ever done that where I was prepared to Record the show and just had this, I don't know, like a pinging from the Holy Spirit over and over to just wait. So I did. And I believe I understand why. And you're going to reap the fruit of that as I have this past week. So let's just jump in. We have been talking about Matthew 18 and the book ends of his teaching. That involved live parables in children. And we left off last week talking about forgiveness and unforgiveness. And we're going to move now into chapter 19. And I want to point out something that you may or may not know. I've taught it several times. But the chapter headings and verse numbers and chapter numbers are None of that is actually original to the writings, the original writings in the original manuscripts. It was all added for our convenience because the Bible itself and each book is so long. The translators wanted to give us tools to be able to identify where particular verses and passages are. So it begins, chapter 19 begins with marriage and divorce. But before we even get into that, I find something very interesting that seems to go along with the way the Holy Spirit has sort of organized this teaching, these teachings from Jesus between the, the illustrations with children. And it's this. In 19 verse 1, it says, It came to pass when Jesus finished the sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Then the Pharisees also came to him, testing him. So now that we've covered forgiveness and unforgiveness, we see the appearance of the Pharisees, which I find extremely interesting. Because the Pharisees, Jesus reserved his most stern words and his most pointed teachings, we'll say, for the Pharisees. He was stern, he was confrontational, and firm with them in a way that he rarely was with anyone else. And it's because the Pharisees were totally blind. I believe they were blind in unforgiveness. And we'll look at that in a moment. But This whole entrance of the Pharisees, it it makes perfect sense. In fact, I almost I I looked for it because I thought, okay, (laughs) this whole forgiveness unforgiveness thing, I have realized over the course of two hundred consultations now between COVID and now, those one on one consultations, I have to say that a a very large chunk involve People who are physically ill in ways they they don't understand and who are blind. We all are blind. I don't mean to point fingers here, but we all are blind. But there is a pharisaical group of us, those of us who are really conscientious, those of us who who strive to do the right thing who are dutiful, who are orderly, those of us with those kinds of personalities and temperaments fall into this pharisaical attitude and outlook more than anyone else. And it makes us Pharisees. It makes us blind. It makes us hard-hearted. And that hard-heartedness is a block to healing. It is the opposite of. Of a little child. Why? Because of all things, this is part of what I've been med- meditating on all week, and, and it has struck me with a lot of force, that one of the main characteristics of children is that they never judge. And this, this just, it brings tears to my eyes, because this really is the crux of what it means to be a child. In the, the biblical sense, as adults, Children, you know, they receive wounds. They receive the offenses of the adults. They receive the sin of the adults, and they never judge. They don't even know how yet. And that's the thing that makes them so innocent. It's their total lack of judgment. A parent can be evil. A parent can be abusive, neglect, a child and a child will still love the parent, and it's because they don't have the capacity for judgment. And I don't mean judgment in a in a, an evaluation kind of way, in the the way of making decisions de- with detachment. I mean judgment in the way of condemnation and contempt. Children just don't have that, and. I'm realizing that, especially through the one-on-one consultations and in my own life, I'm realizing that it is this judgment that keeps us from healing the most. Because unforgiveness comes from judgment. It comes from judgment for other people. And when we can't forgive ourselves and we are wrapped up in this pharisaical attitude, then it's because we have made judgments about other people that are actually true of ourselves. And I'll get to that in a moment. But what do I mean by Pharisee? So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Scribes were the three hierarchy levels, we'll say, or even we could say camps of doctrines and practice and belief in Judaism. So the Pharisees were orthodox. And that's the thing about them, that it should have led them to this deeper knowledge of complementarity and, and receptiveness and love that Jesus is about to teach in his teaching here on marriage and divorce and celibacy. But what happens to us is when we have right doctrine, we're very proud of it, and we judge other people when they don't have it. So the Pharisees were the orthodox group of the, the hierarchy in Judaism. The Sadducees were more laissez-faire. They, they had removed entire chunks of the scriptures in favor of their pet teachings. And so they were not orthodox, but they at least did practice most of Judaism. And so they were sort of, we could say, a group. If we were going to draw a parallel, we could say that Catholicism is similar to Pharisaism in its most orthodox, and the Sadducees were somewhat like the Protestants, who may or may not—we don't know. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't even know that I was missing a whole bunch of important teachings. I didn't have the teachings of the church history. I didn't have the teachings of the church fathers. I didn't even know that stuff existed until I did. And once I did, I just was like really shocked. <laughs> I was shocked. And so I, I'm not I'm not making a hard and fast category. I'm just sort of trying, trying to draw a parallel to help you understand how these two groups kind of fit together. The scribes were an educated class who studied the scriptures and they served as copyists and editors and teachers and lawyers, even. They, and remember that the scriptures for them would have been the Old Testament, particularly those first five books, the Torah or the Pentateuch. That would have been their Mosaic law. And so they were involved in studying that and copying it, editing it, teaching it, that kind of thing. So these were. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes were all educated people in Judaism. The Sadducees mostly came from the leading families of the nation, the priests and the merchants and the aristocrats. And the high priests and the most powerful members of the priesthood were usually Sadducees because they came from it's believed, that line of Zadok, the high priest in the days of David and Solomon. And so most of the wealthy lay people were Sadducees, but they rejected the traditions, the body of oral and written commentary of the elders. That was the sort of interpretation of the law of Moses, and the Sadducees completely rejected all of that. That would have been the tradition part, right, which is part of why I sort of made a, um, a correlation between the Sadducees and The Protestants, whereas the Pharisees had elevated those interpretations to almost be as important as the law itself. And so you can see why there was this tension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and why both of those groups were confrontational with Jesus, who is and was the true and final interpretation of all of that law, the law of Moses, but the entire Old Testament, really. The Sadducees taught that what was written in the law of Moses in the Pentateuch in that first five books was really the only thing that was binding, whereas the Pharisees, of course, they held to all of the tradition and the law. You are listening to the Sacred Healing 1230 Podcast, because love heals. Aren't you tired of all the ugliness on social media? You need a faith community that nurtures you and helps you heal. Visit com and click Community on the menu, or scroll down to the radio notes and click the link to the Sacred Healing 1230 Community. You'll find monthly coaching calls for one-on-one consultation and masterclass participants, live healing prayer streams, a monthly Bible study, prayer intentions and intercessions, love the word takeaways from the daily readings, and poignant shares of our victories and struggles. We're waiting for you. Are you coming? Did you know you can get Bible study evangelista radio notes and podcasts delivered to your inbox every Monday morning? redeem your Mondays. Join thousands of your fellow listeners by subscribing at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. spent all that time explaining the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes because I want you to understand that it was this sort of attitude of superiority that, that proceeds from judgments that caused the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes to be so closed to their own healing and the healing of other people all of the healing that Jesus did, they were offended by it. And how can you be offended by someone else's growth in healing and in virtue and in holiness? And yet that's exactly how these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes saw Jesus and saw those whom he had come to heal the forgiveness of sins. Now, what I really want you to see is yourself here. I want you to see yourself, because we get really upset when other people seem to get things that we don't get. Think about the prodigal son, who who wasted his his entire inheritance. On prostitutes and excessive living and vanity and all that stuff. And the, the brother who was at home keeping all the rules, doing everything he was supposed to do. And he's really, really angry that somehow this prodigal brother, he's getting a party. And why am I here doing all this? And, and keeping all the rules and doing all the right things, and I don't get a party. Where's my party? You know, he's very, very angry. And this is what we fall into. And so it is. it makes perfect sense that after Jesus teaches about forgiveness and unforgiveness, here come the Pharisees. And they are challenging Jesus with a bunch of questions that are not true, sincere questions. They don't really want to know what Jesus thinks about marriage and divorce. They're trying to trap him. Why? Because they are angry. They're angry because they're judgmental. They're judgmental because they have unforgiveness, both toward other people and also toward themselves. Now, in the context of the little way, when we are trying to turn back to our inner child and we are removing the sin in our lives. We are trying to rescue the lost sheep of us, those various ages at which we disowned part of ourselves and we seek to confront those faults in ourselves through this sort of uh, uh, fraternal correction And then we seek to forgive ourselves. There is always a part of us, a pharisaical part of us that judges. How dare you forgive the debt that you incurred by this sin that you committed or that someone else committed against you? That sort of was the cause, we'll say, of leaving that child behind to begin with. What I'm what I'm trying to say is there's a pharisaical judgmental part that steps in this process and seeks to stop it. The pharisaical part of us does not want this healing to occur And I I know this is terrible, but this is part of concupiscence. And I believe now, after meditating on this for some time, I believe that this is the essence of that concupiscence, this blindness that we have in judgment. Jesus tells a parable, and I've, I've taught on this quite a bit, but I have been over and over it. Again, just in the last couple of weeks, looking at this, he says in in Matthew chapter seven, judge not that you be not judged for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And the measure that you use will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, what he's saying there is that judgments make us blind. They blind us to the reality That we are guilty of the thing that we're accusing either the other person or ourselves of. We don't even realize we're accusing ourselves, but we are. And that's why we judge outwardly. This is psychology 101. Judgments are projections. We always project on the other person the thing that we have not yet seen in ourselves, the thing that we have not yet consciously been made aware of. And so that makes judgments full of good self-knowledge information. Don't fall into judgment watching yourself judge. <laughs> Just step back without judgment and make an evaluation. That's the difference in an evaluation and this, this condemnation contempt loaded Judgment That we make. And so my challenge to you here and the challenge that that Jesus is really confronting the Pharisees and the scribes with here in chapter 19 is this idea of unforgiveness and judgment. Judgment causes us to to be unforgiving. We're not forgiving of other people. Because we can't forgive ourselves. So what is it that you're judging yourself for that makes you judgmental of someone else that makes you blind and unable to be healed? Blind to the the little child in your past and even disgusted with it. What is it in your life that makes you disgusted with that child? And, and when I say child, you know, some of this stuff, we see ourselves in the, the little way visualization, and some of us are very young, three and four. But if you turn back more than once, what you'll see is there are far more of you than just the one. There is an adolescent Mine was 13 when my parents divorced. That was a a terrible, awful time. It wasn't something, I mean, actually, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for that because I would have been completely lost for sure. Institutionalized, either in prison or in jail, because it was so devastating to our family. But if it hadn't happened... I I would have lost everything. I would have lost myself completely. So it it was a good bad kind of thing, but looking back on that 13-year-old, she got really lost. She got lost and she was very very hurt and in order to to just survive all of that, she made decisions and vows and judgments about her parents, about marriage and divorce and That was one of the things I always said. I will never get divorced. This is a vow that we make these vows out of these hurts. And that's a stopping point in your spiritual growth and your health. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that you're like completely arrested. You'll grow in other areas. But that one area will stay stuck. And I had to really look at that. It it was, well, I don't want to go into that process for myself. But what I'm saying is, when we turn back to the, the little child in us, if we continue to turn back, what we find is that there are many parts of us at different ages and stages in life that got left. And we hold judgments. The older that child gets, the more judgments we hold against that child. Well, you knew better and you did it anyway. How many of us have remembered something that we did in our late teens, early 20s, And we look back on that child because they still are children. They're not completely grown. Their brains haven't even completely developed. And yet we are so critical about that time in our lives, the things that we do. And we all do them because we're all wounded. I mean, things like uh, sex outside of marriage, drug experimentation, all (laughs) abortions, things that we do as children, young adults, and i'm talking serious serious condemnation. We can usually get close to the little child cuz we can feel sorry for the child. We can remother or refather the young child in us, but when it comes to adolescence, young adulthood, and even adulthood, we have a lot of judgments that we're holding against ourselves, and those judgments that we make against ourselves, we project onto other people. The very flaws and faults that are in us are the ones we project on everyone else, and this is the lesson of the Pharisees. They come to Jesus, and they, they're argumentative with him. They're supposedly asking him questions, but what they're really doing is trying to trap him in some fault That they themselves hold. And so he engages them and he corrects their view of marriage and divorce because Moses gave them permission in some cases to put away their wives. And in those days, they all did it. I mean, the, the woman's position in a marriage was basically that of property. She and her children were the husband's property. You are listening to the Sacred Healing 1230 Podcast. Because love heals. Losing it more often or lost yourself entirely? Binging on food, alcohol, or your phone? Feeling exhausted, anxious, angry, scared? You've done all the novenas, all the consecrations, adoration, daily mass, Bible study, therapy, and deliverance prayers, why has none of it given you permanent relief? Does God not care? He does care, but you can't feel it because you need to be cherished. You need to be healed. In Sacred Healing 1230, I teach you how to live authentically from the holistic love of God in the power of Mark 1230, heart, soul, mind, and strength. I teach you how to be cherished. I teach you how to guard your peace. I teach you how to love authentically teach you how to heal deeply. I teach you how to feel better because you can only love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength if they are healing and whole in Him. The love you were made for is only a mouse click away. Go to BibleStudyEvangelista.com to stop the emotional vomit and start experiencing the miracle of living authentically from the healing love of God in your heart, soul, mind, and body. A woman and her children were the husband's property. And if you think about the whole Pharisaicals' attitude, they felt that they possessed Judaism. They felt it was theirs. And how dare Jesus for coming in here and trying to correct our view of God as a loving father. They did not have that view. They had the view of this punitive, mean, revenge or vengeful type God. And lots of us with Pharisaism have that view of God. And of course, you know, we want to look back to those Old Testament scriptures and say, well, that's what they say. They say that God is wrathful and he's vengeful and that we will pay. And and that's true. But you have to understand that there is something called a, a divine pedagogy, which means God teaches in stages. And what I'm coming to realize is that the sword that pierced Mary's heart so that the thoughts of many hearts could be revealed was that sort of redemptive suffering that she was willing to undergo with Jesus because until that happened on the cross and, and by the cross through Mary and through Jesus, until that redemptive suffering, the chalice of that suffering was completely drunk to the last drop, there could be no illumination of this type, this type of psychological truth and reality that we project all of our own judgments onto other people. This was true collectively in the Old Testament. The whole people saw God as a punitive God. That is a projection because they themselves were some of the most punitive now of course this is these lessons were taught to them through their scriptures and through their writings but I want you to see that these are stages of teaching and stages of growth we all in striving to keep the the rules will say and the laws of god and striving to obey him once we get a little bit proficient in that we are always judging other people who aren't doing it i just s- smoking comes to mind i remember when i quit smoking <laughs> everybody everybody who smoked was suddenly just you know what's wrong with you everyone who comes to a modicum of faith and begins practicing and obeying turns to judge his brother and sister particularly particularly those who are outside of faith for not having any. We do this all the time, but I want to what I'm trying to say is we do it collectively as well. And so there were judgments that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had that were not actually wrong because they were keeping the law, but they were meant at this point once Jesus came and he was trying to to lead them into something deeper, which is this complementarity of self-donation of love illustrated through this discussion in marriage, that's what he was trying to lead them to, this deeper love. It the, the rules and the obedience are simply meant to be the foundation from whence we can go deeper with other people, with ourselves and other people. When we get healed of these judgments, when we can forgive ourselves and other people, and sometimes even God, a lot of times our judgments are actually held against God. We're very angry at God. Lots, I would say almost every one of us, every one of us. If this is not something you have ever thought about before, please take a moment. How angry at God are you? Now, God, the Bible says, only does wondrous things. And so inherently, we know that we have no right to be angry at God. And yet we, we are because of some of the things that he allows He allows very deep hurts, especially when we're children, when we can't defend ourselves, when we don't have these sorts of judgments. And so we get angry at God. But what I'm trying to suggest and what I want you to start thinking about is, where are you angry at yourself and projecting that anger on God? Because it's our own guilt that we're projecting on God. Julian of Norwich said, there is no wrath in God. That is my own understanding that I have come to through the scriptures as a whole, not proof texting from the Old Testament or even the New Testament, because it is clear through Paul and through Jesus, there is now no condemnation. There is now no judgment. The condemnation we're feeling is against ourselves and we're projecting it on other people and we're projecting it onto God. God is not judging us. The judgment only happens at judgment day, first of all, and it's the judgment that we leave the world with. If we have held things against ourselves, if we have things that are unconfessed, things that are unforgiven, things that are unhealed, and we remain in that state, then that is the experience of God's love is miserable. It is, it burns, it is a fire, And it's unquenchable because there is no chance to change it anymore once we're dead. Judgments prevent us from experiencing the other person. From simply experiencing them, their gifts, their talents, their wounds, their projections, and learning from them and receiving them and a full self-donation of love toward them when it's appropriate. That's what a judgment prevents it is a block. It is a huge block. I would say next to unforgiveness, it is the number one block to healing. Judgments are always projections. Step away from your judgment dispassionately, detach yourself from it, and see if you can discern with the Holy Spirit who you're really judging. What are you really judging? Because it's not the other person Although that is true, <laughs> but it's usually it's it's something in us. There's something in us, and and this can be uh, a difficult process because we fool ourselves and we lie to ourselves, and that's why Jesus said to the Pharisees that they are a brood of vipers. They are full of this darkness and this enmity. They are a an a whitewashed tomb. They're beautiful on the outside. Got it all together. All their shits together. They're at mass all the time. They're wearing their veils. They're praying their rosary. They're doing all of the Catholic things. But they are ugly, ugly dead inside. Full of judgment. Full of unforgiveness. And because they can't see it in themselves, they're projecting it on God, on their neighbor, on everyone else. And we do this collectively. We do this collectively too. I think my next series is going to be some something like that. I don't know. But Jesus, before he goes into this teaching about complementarity in marriage and the indissolubility of marriage, the one flesh, before he goes into that, he's confronted by these Pharisees. So before we can receive our spouse, or let's just bring it down individually. Before we can fully receive ourselves, we have to see this pharisaical element in ourselves and confront it because only then can we receive the other, all of the parts of ourselves that have been left behind and condemned and that we're disgusted with and that we're full of contempt for. Only then can we really turn back and see All of those parts for ourselves, welcome them in to this embrace and this unity and communion that they're meant to have, that we are meant to have within ourselves, within our vocations, within our church, and within the world. Now, of course, we can't give a full self donation to all the people, but we can in our vocation, and we certainly must with God. And we're not able to give a full self donation of to God. If we're judging him and afraid of him because we're guilty on the inside and can't forgive ourselves and full of self-loathing and self-hatred, and that anger and that loathing and that self-hatred will end up eating us up inside from the inside out physically if we don't really see it. And that's why we're doing this series. So part of turning back to in the little way and being converted as a child, is to go back to the time of innocence where there was no judgment. We don't judge the younger parts of ourselves. We don't judge other people because we realize that we're actually holding judgments against ourselves, and we need the Holy Spirit to help us pull that beam out of our eyes so that we can see clearly to experience the other person and to simply love the other person. Now, in saying that, I am not... Negating everything else we've said about boundaries because I don't judge you, I experience you. And if my experience of you is habitually destructive, I will place boundaries that protect both you and me. It's not either boundaries or forgiveness or lack of judgment, it's boundaries plus forgiveness plus detachment from judgments. Once we have detachment from the judgments, we have good boundaries. Once we have that, We are able to enter into communion. We're able to enter into relationship. But until we've done that, our relationships are going to be a mess. We're not going to have communion either within ourselves or with other people or with God because we are hanging on to our judgments. You are listening to the Sacred Healing 1230 Podcast, because love heals. If you love having Bible study in your pocket, you can become a friend of the show. Click on the yellow friend of the show button on BibleStudyEvangelista.com and become a supporter of any amount and any frequency. Now, here's Sonia. Once we really start getting serious about seeing our judgments and about probing those with the Holy Spirit, about seeing the faults within ourselves that we're projecting on everyone else, once we get serious about that, what we discover is contradictions within ourselves. I want to do X, but instead I do Y. And the older we get, the more baffling and shocking and irritating and humiliating those contradictions become. And that's exactly why God allows them, actually. So stop being blind to that. Stop pushing it away. Stop refusing to see the contradictions in yourself and simply embrace the fact that because of concupiscence, you have contradictions. Part of you wants to do all the right things, and some of you wants to do the wrong things. And what you discover is that desire to do the wrong thing in certain situations with certain kinds of people, that's not just a character fault that you can muscle your way through just with obedience. It's not just a character flaw or a part of of a bad habit that you need to fix. It was formed in you from the time of, of your development. It is part of your personality and you can't just rip it out. It can't be ripped out. And so because we sense somewhere that it cannot be ripped out, that it is actually part of who I am, and it is such a scary part. It's a baffling part. It is a heartbreaking part. Why do I do the things I don't want to do? Why do I want to do the things I don't want to do? (laughs) Why do I have this contradiction? Because it was formed in you, and it's part of your personality from way, way back, little, little, way childhood. And you must confront that part of your personality. It's a dark part. Sometimes it's called a shadow part, but it is sometimes even deeper than just the shadow because the shadow really is just the things that contradict the persona, the mask that we put forth. These things that I'm talking about are so deep, they actually are part of our personality. And so they cannot be split away from who we are. They must be confronted. They must be seen in all of their darkness and embraced not allowed to rule us but at least seen and acknowledged only when we see and acknowledge those really ugly dark parts of us without letting them rule they have to have boundaries right but only in seeing them and acknowledging them and even embracing them are they finally do they finally lose their power They lose their power to make us do things because suddenly we see them for what they are. It's the same old story as the Garden of Eden again. The snake is simply trying to keep us from seeing it. And so it distracts us with projections. It distracts us with all kinds of things to keep us from seeing that that snake is actually part of me. That snake is part of my personality. It's not simply a character fault. It's not something that I can simply obey my way out of. It's part of who I am. And if I, if God were to rip that part out of me, I would shatter into fragments and never be able to recover myself again. My psyche would be split irretrievably and irreconcilably. And so he doesn't rip it out. He doesn't scrub it out. What he does is he brings light to it and he wants us to see it. That's why he kept saying to the Pharisees, they were blind. They were blind. Let us not be blind anymore so that we can enter into this communion that Jesus is about to teach us about. And I want you to... To take comfort in the fact that you are not alone because St. Paul had this very dilemma in Romans chapter 7. He said, for what I'm doing, I do not understand what I will to do that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good. I do not find for the good that I will to do. I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. Now, Romans was one of the last books that Paul wrote. So this was not at his the beginning of his Christian journey. This was at the end. He is seeing the contradictions in himself. We must see the contradictions in ourselves. We must see the judgments that we're projecting on other people and on God. We must see ourselves as deeply as as God will, will bring us to that knowledge. He will. He will bring it to us, but in stages, because he can't show us all of it at one time, or we would split and explode into a million pieces. Our God of the sacred, holy trinity— of the communion of love, of union, would never do that to one of his children. He would never do that. He calls us instead to the love that can heal us, this complementarity. And he's teaching through the indissolubility of marriage that that's what it's meant to do. It's meant to bring us into this oneness, It is visualized through the oneness of the two that become one flesh, but it's also a communion that is imaging the communion of the Trinity. It is a complementarity. It is a, I have a fault here, but you have a strength there. You have a fault here, but I have a strength there. I have a personality flaw that cannot be removed. It must be confronted. So I need you to see it. In myself, and you have a care or a personality darkness. We'll say that you need me to help you see, see the complementarity. This is why our relationships are so difficult because we're all projecting onto each other all the stuff we don't want to see about ourselves. Now the Pharisees' questions are about marriage and about celibacy, or at least Jesus teaches about celibacy. But these are just outward signs of an inward reality, the oneness that should occur between our our parts in ourselves the contradictions in ourselves and the oneness then that we can take to our vocation our marriage or if we have a a a religious vocation or a, a vocation to the priesthood and celibi, celibacy is involved, then we can have that oneness in community. We can have definitely, each of us can have that oneness with God. That's what he's talking about. And so in the marriage vocation, I want to read something out of the decree on the apostolate of the laity by Pope Paul Sixth. Back in 1965, he says, Since the Creator of all things has established conjugal society as the beginning and basis of human society, and by His grace has made it a great mystery in Christ and the Church, the apostolate of married persons and families is of unique importance for the Church and civil society. Christian husbands and wives are cooperators in grace and witnesses of faith for each other, their children, and all others in their household. They are the first to communicate the faith to their children and to educate them by word and example for the Christian and apostolic life. They prudently help them in the choice of their vocation and carefully promote any sacred vocation which they may discern in them. It has always been the duty of Christian married partners, but today it is the greatest part of their apostolate to manifest and prove by their own way of life the indissolubility and sacredness of the marriage bond, strenuously to affirm the right and duty of parents and guardians to educate children in a Christian manner and to defend the dignity and lawful autonomy of the family. They and the rest of the faithful, therefore, should cooperate with men of goodwill to ensure the preservation of these rights in civil legislation and to make sure that governments give due attention to the needs of the family." This mission, to be the first and vital cell of society the family has received from God. It will fulfill this mission if it appears as the domestic sanctuary of the church by reason of the mutual affection of its members and the prayer that they offer to God in common, if the whole family makes itself a part of the liturgical worship of the church, and if it provides active hospitality and promotes justice and other good works for the service of all the brethren in need. Christian families can give effective testimony to Christ before the world by remaining faithful to the gospel and by providing a model of Christian marriage through their whole way of life. And it must begin with us. Our role with one another is to get each other to heaven. That's true in a marriage vocation. It's true in religious life. It's true in the priesthood. It is true for every one of us that we must turn back to the child in us, remove the sin, go back for the lost sheep, confront the sin in ourselves and the unforgiveness in ourselves, forgive those who have offended us. Sometimes we even need to confront the people who have offended us. But either way, if we do this well, if we go deep enough with Jesus into the pharisaical parts of ourselves into the pharisaical parts of our lives and our judgments and our unforgiveness if we go deep enough with him and we truly see the beam is removed we can see clearly ourselves we can see clearly the other person and we can actually enter into communion and unity both with God perhaps with celibacy if we have a religious vocation but definitely with in our marriages and families This is the wound of the world. The projections, the pharisaical projections and judgments and contempt that we lay on other people because we're full of it ourselves. We lay it on God. We lay it on our children. We lay it on our spouses. We lay it on our priests. We lay it on everyone else and because it's so hard to see in ourselves that what I really want to do, I don't do. I wish I did. But man, where does that come from, Lord? How can that be healed in me? What do I need to see that I have not seen before? Show it to me. Speak, for your servant is listening. That is the way we go back. Next week, we're going to talk about, we're going to wrap up this Little Way series, and we're going to talk about practical other ways, although all this is practical, isn't it? We're going to talk about other practical ways that we can seek to be little with St. Therese specifically. I'll see you then. Thank you for listening to this Sacred Healing 1230 podcast. Find out more at BibleStudyEvangelista.com because love heals.